Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 128, She Will Not Speak. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, home of the audiobook Knitting Lessons, which I loved. (laughs) I just had to let you know, uh, Kathy Gardner wrote on her site that this is the book that made her want to start the whole company, and I can see why. It is lovely. I mentioned it on last week's podcast, and I finished it in the meantime. And wow, just lovely. It just makes you feel kind of good about us and about knitting and fiber arts. And I don't know. It just made me feel like she, through her travels, has met the same kind of people that I have met through my travels. And uh, as part of this larger craft lit family, and I am going to tell you about more travels because things are happening in the craft lit world. First and foremost, and very exciting, I am going to Maryland. I will be at Maryland Sheep and Wool, mostly hanging out with Jenny the Potter at her stand. She's going to have her wares there to sell. Uh, I'll be there with Amy Singer. I'll be there with Dawn from Sh- Crochet Compulsive. We will all be there en masse and I will have my digital recorder. So if you want to come and say anything you want to say that isn't, you know, verboten uh, on a Craftlet show, please give give us a visit. Come over. There will be Craftlet CDs for, I know there's plenty of people who live in rural areas and I have a number of friends who are in this situation and they can't download any podcasts. So it occurred to me that since audiobooks are audiobooks, and all we do on Craftlet is really audiobooks with information, I should probably compile these into CD sets that people can can buy. Um, I'm very excited about this, and I'm in the process of, of making all of this happen. So there will be some of that at Maryland, and I think Amy Singer is bringing some nitty stuff, and it's just it's going to be a bundle of fun. And then there's the weird part about Maryland Sheep and Wool, which is that, as I recall, on one side of the festivities, you can go and visit the little lammies and pet the sheep and ooh and awe over how adorable they are. And then over on the other side is like the concession row. And there was lamb for sale for lunch. <laughs> I just kind of thought, wow, that's interesting. I hadn't seen that happen before. You know, meet your lunch first and then go and eat. So Maryland Sheep and Wool, very excited. Very excited. I know Jenny the Potter is frantically approaching uh, the last two weeks of production. And if you haven't ever taken a look at Jenny's stuff, really, truly, I know it's hard to judge stuff off of a website. And it's one of the reasons why when I do find something on a website that really works well, I want to let you guys know about it. Jenny's level of craftsmanship is way beyond any kind of mass-produced thing. The, I don't know, the, I guess the word is substantial. It is, there's something really nice about having a piece of art, because it is, Jenny does beautiful work, but a piece of art that feels substantial. It's like buying a sculpture. It's great. And and that's that's how Jenny's stuff is. It just is. So if you haven't seen it before, come visit at Maryland Sheep and Wool. And if you can't get to Maryland Sheep and Wool, go visit JennyThePotter.com and take a look at the beautiful, beautiful things she does uh, all by hand. And as I recall, dishwasher safe and I think microwave safe. But it says on the website for sure. That's Jenny the Potter, and that's Maryland Sheep and Wool, the first weekend in May, right before my birthday. So this is like my big birthday present. I'm very excited. The second thing to announce is the Sock Summit. I mentioned this briefly back when we were first announced, and then it's just been hubbub. Hubbub is describing my life right now. 
Uh, Sock Summit. I am driving up there with my mom and my sons. So we'll have another on the road podcast if everything works right. Uh, Driving up to Meg's in Southern Idaho. More about Meg shortly. And then we will mosey across to Portland, um, maybe visiting some friends in the Dalles, but ultimately ending up in Portland Central. Very excited. I have seen my teaching schedule. It is insane, and that's great, because that means I get to meet a lot of people, and we get to play with sock heels, and all that stuff. So I am the one teaching the sock heels class, and I'll just tell you up front, in front of God and everyone, here's what it is. Nancy Bush has the book uh, on knitting vintage socks. The socks are wonderful. They're all, I think, extracted from like Weldon's kinds of uh, patterns, and she's gone back and redone them for modern yarn and modern needles, and uh, honestly, modern hands, because we just don't knit on triple aughts much anymore. It's really interesting, because the sock heels that she uses, plus a couple that I've collected on my own, sock heels used to really intimidate me, and my feet don't fit certain sock heels. Like, I love Cookie A's patterns off of Nitty, but her sock heels never fit me. They're always a little too broad. Well, what I did for my own benefit originally was figure out how to translate the math from, say, a pattern in a Nancy Bush book uh, of a sock heel that I liked, translate that math to the Cookie A pattern and gauge. And so I figured out a formula for all of these different sock heels. So the... um, The main ones come from Nancy Bush's book because I think those are the ones that are most traditional and honestly anything that comes from Nancy Bush is something that you're going to want to take a good look at. So we kind of deconstruct the sock heel and look at the math. Then there are a couple other sock heels that you should take a look at. One of them is a Sherman heel and there's another one that I can't remember. Oh, toe up heel flap. So we're just going to do the math. We're going to do the math. You're going to walk away with a formula. It's six hours of sock knitting. If you are going to sign up for my class, here's what you need to do. Knit a bunch of sock starts. Any gauge you want, any needles you want. Use worsted. Go fast. I don't care. But get like an inch or two of ribbing, like an anklet sock. And then on three or four of them, knit a heel flap. Just knit down half of them half of the stitches, make a heel flap any way you like, and stop. Put everything on holders and start another one. If you have five or six of those, you will fly through the class. Uh, So that's my advertisement for my Sock Summit thing. Everybody else is teaching there. Bob Walker, Meg Swanson, Amy Singer, Stephanie Pearl McPhee, Cookie A, Nancy Bush, Priscilla uh, Priscilla Gibson Roberts. I mean, it goes on and on. So that is August. Now here's the other fun part. My husband flies up the night before the sock summit. He takes care of the boys. And then when it's all over, we're driving down the coast. We will be in San Francisco for at least a couple of days, maybe more. Uh, some of the time I'm going to get to see my old roommates from college and their kids, and that's great. And then we will head down. I think we are doing Death Valley, Hoover Dam, Prescott, Tucson, something like that. Or we'll just go down the coast and that'll be fine too. So there's lots of interesting things and I'm hoping, oh, and there's another one in the middle of May, May 11th-ish, I'm going to be in New York City. So (laughs) now I have three things, Maryland, first week of May, first weekend in May, uh, New York City, just because my sister's graduating from NYU second full week of May, and then Portland, Sock Summit, beginning of August, first weekend in August, and then San Francisco, the first full week of August, right after that. It'll be like the 10th or 11th that we get there. So, if you live in any of these places and you want to hook up, we need to figure out a way to do that. Probably Ravelry is the easiest way, although I know there are people who are not on Ravelry who listen because you are not knitters, and I know you aren't. Um, So email me, mamaonits at gmail.com if you are interested in hooking up, and I will have my kids and husband with me, although he'll probably say, no, go, have fun. But if you have kids too, and you need a kid-friendly thing, maybe we can do a big craft lit a-thon party picnic thing with kids and spouses and everything. I have no idea. 
I'm waiting to see what you have to say. And on that same travel note, if one of you out there is a travel agent or someone involved in the travel industry, give me a line. Drop me a line. Let me know. I have a question for you. And I'm curious. So, uh, mamaonits at gmail.com. I think that's all my travel information. Getting back to Meg at the March Hare, her Etsy store, the challenge is on for what to do with the scarlet letter sock yarn. Um, Gorgeous, gorgeous. I think I took a picture to show you last time. Really beautiful sock yarn. And Meg's stuff, I've been knitting up some some other things from her uh, for, actually, sock heel demos for our class. Um, She made me some Cinco de Mayo yarn, God, a year ago. That is stupendous. And so I'm having a ball knitting that up because it just vibrant colors, good vibrant colors, nice yarn, good stuff. So Meg has that challenge on. And I just got a ping from Yellow Dog, the store that we had an incentive from last year. And we're going to try and hook up for another incentive this year. And I'll let you know more about that in the future. Finished knitting my knucks. I think I said that last week. And I have been wearing them because even though it is 82 degrees outside, my fingers are freezing. So yay, knitty.com, because that has been a godsend. As far as knitting goes, I've been doing weird little things. I got some of those uh, sock blanks that have been pre-dyed, funky dyed, and I'm knitting socks for my sons because they expect it now. (laughs) I'm so, so stuck. And I also have been working with double knitting. That's the process of knitting a tube flat. So you slip a stitch, knit a stitch, slip a stitch, knit a stitch, and basically you're creating two sides of fabric because when you return you knit the stitch that you slipped before so it looks like you're purling the whole outside of the tube you're creating looks purled but really it's all knit because you turn the thing inside out when you're done well I have a bad habit of losing iPod headphones and I don't use those earbuds they hurt my ears my ears are just wrong they don't fit right so I have a different pair of, of headphones ones that I don't want to lose and I keep misplacing them so I am double knitting double ended iPod cases with a little iCord button closure thing and I've been really happy with it so I, I did one for my husband's iPod which is the regular iPod now I'm working on one for a nano and then at some point I'll do the um, the mini as well but I'm I'm going to once I've done each size I'm going to write down the pattern for it and uh, and I'll probably put that up on Ravelry but I'm very excited about that because it's it's working I've got double knitting down I have made a teddy bear double knit and my son absconded with that and then I've got the little iPod cases so something to do with sock yarn ends still drawing painting working on that very happy really glad I took that class And I've been getting more and more emails from people who are like, you know, I've branched out and I've tried this and I never would have tried this if you hadn't said something about it. And it just makes me really happy. Oh, and we have the coolest listener. (laughs) People have been finding the podcast of late because we've been written up in a couple of different magazines and and people are finding podcasts. And um, and one of one of the women who I've been corresponding with makes toys She's like Geppetto. She's an actual toy maker. It is so cool to, you know, make contact with someone who does that. It's like it's like when I first started working at Disney and you see somebody who can draw Mickey. I think I've said this before that it's just kind of shocking to see Mickey appear on a paper. It's like, wow, real humans. Real humans do that? Same thing with the toy making. I just think that is so cool. So enough rambling. I think that's everything. I chose this week's podcast title, She Will Not Speak, because it is one of my favorite lines from the chapter we're going to read today. So, if you remember where we left off last week, Hester had emerged from the prison. She was standing on the pillory with the baby, with the scarlet letter. And one more time, the scarlet letter is not scarlet. It's a gold letter on a scarlet background. And she talks about it both in the last chapter briefly, but she'll talk about it more and more as though the letter itself um, carries heat 
actually it is actually uh, you could say you know in touch with the hellfire of her sin you know that it is it is burning with sin kind of like neon um you're going to get more and more of that from hester as we go along but she um she grabbed pearl and held her so close to her chest that the baby cried and looked down at the scarlet letter and touched it. <sighs> it's very sad. So, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on chapter three and then read it to you. And I'll probably stop in the middle like I do. And then I will talk about it a little bit afterwards. I don't want to spoil too much in this chapter. So, we are still in the public square. We are still watching Hester. Uh, she's been up for her time. And now you get a little bit of... You know how in the beginning we kind of got the good wives and what nasty, nasty ladies they were? Well, this is now getting to know a little bit more about the townspeople. And again, because Hawthorne was very, very careful about how he constructed this narrative, some of the people that we see are actual, honest-to-goodness historical figures. I mean, it's not like Cotton Mather appears, this is too early, but but there are historical people who show up, and he does mention historical people all throughout the, the beginning of the book, a little bit less later on. But, um, but we get a little bit more about the town, and we definitely get more about Hester, and the way the men in the town particularly um, approach her. I don't want to say how they feel about her. It's more than that. It's about how, kind of, you know, how they're going to approach her, treat her, interact with her. Um, it's an interesting chapter. So, without any further, chapter three, The Recognition. From this intense consciousness of being the object of severe and universal observation, the wearer of the scarlet letter was at length relieved by discerning on the outskirts of the crowd a figure which irresistibly took possession of her thoughts. An Indian, in his native garb, was standing there. But the red men were not so infrequent visitors of the English settlements that one of them would have much attracted any notice from Hester Prynne at such a time much less would he have excluded all other objects and ideas from her mind. By the Indian's side, and evidently sustaining a companionship with him, stood a white man, clad in a strange disarray of civilized and savage costume. He was a small man in stature, with a furrowed visage which as yet could hardly be termed age. There was a remarkable intelligence in his features, as of a person who had so cultivated his mental part that it could not fail to mold the physical to itself and become manifest by unmistakable tokens, although, by a seemingly careless arrangement of his heterogeneous garb, he had endeavored to conceal or abate the peculiarity. It was sufficiently evident to Hester Prynne that one of this man's shoulders rose higher than the other. Again, at the first instant of perceiving that thin visage and the slight deformity of the figure, she pressed her infant to her bosom with so convulsive a force that the poor babe uttered another cry of pain. But the mother did not seem to hear it. At his arrival in the marketplace, and sometime before she saw him, the stranger had bent his eyes on Hester Prynne. It was carelessly at first like a man chiefly accustomed to look inward in whom external matters are of little value and import unless they bear relation to something within his mind. Very soon, however, his look became keen and penetrative, a writhing horror twisting itself across his features like a snake gliding swiftly over them and making one little pause with all its wreathed intervolutions in open sight. His face darkened with some powerful emotion, which, nevertheless, he so instantaneously controlled by an effort of his will, that, save at a single moment, its expression might have passed for calmness. After a brief space, the convulsion grew almost imperceptible, and finally subsided into the depth of his nature. When he found the eyes of Hester Prynne fastened on his own, and saw that she appeared to recognize him, he slowly and calmly raised his finger, made a gesture with it in the air, and laid it 
on his lips. Then, touching the shoulder of a townsman who stood next to him, he addressed him in a formal and courteous manner. I pray you, good sir, said he, who is this woman? And wherefore is she here set up to public shame? You must needs be a stranger in this region, friend, answered the townsman, looking curiously at the questioner and his savage companion. Else you would surely have heard of Mistress Hester Prynne and her evil doings. She hath raised a great scandal, I promise you, in godly Master Dimsdale's church. You say truly, replied the other, I am a stranger, and have been a wanderer sorely against my will. I have met with grievous mishaps by sea and land, and have been long held in bonds among the heathen folk to the southward, and am now brought hither by this Indian to be redeemed out of my captivity. Will it please you, therefore, to tell me of Hester Prynne's—have uh, I her name rightly?—of this woman's offences, and what has brought her to yonder scaffold? Truly, friend, and methinks it must gladden your heart after your troubles and sojourn in the wilderness, said the townsman, to find yourself at length in a land where iniquity is searched out and punished in the sight of rulers and people, as here in our godly New England. Yonder woman, sir, you must know, was the wife of a certain learned man, English by birth, but who had long dwelt in Amsterdam, whence some good time agone he was minded to cross over, and cast in his lot with us of the Massachusetts." To this purpose he sent his wife before him, remaining himself to look after some necessary affairs. Marry, good sir, in some two years or less that the woman has been a dweller here in Boston, no tidings have come of this learned gentleman, Master Prynne, and his young wife, look at you, being left to her own misguidance. Ah, aha, I conceive you, said the stranger with a bitter smile. So learned a man as you speak of should have learned this too in his books. And who, by your favor, sir, may be the father of the yonder babe? Is it some three or four months old, I should judge, which Mistress Prynne is holding in her arms? Of a truth, friend, that matter remaineth a riddle, and the Daniel who shall expound it is yet a wanting, answered the townsman. And just a sideline, the footnote here says the prophet Daniel had interpreted the writing that appeared on the wall during Balthazar's feast. They spell it differently. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Anyway, Book of Daniel is where that comes from. Madam Hester absolutely refuseth to speak, and the magistrates have laid their heads together in vain. Peradventure the guilty one stands looking on at this sad spectacle, unknown of man, and forgetting that God sees him. The learned man, observed the stranger with another smile, should come himself to look into the mystery. It behooves him well, sir, if he be still in life, responded the townsman. Now, good sir, our Massachusetts magistracy, bethinking themselves that this woman is youthful and fair, and doubtless was strongly tempted to her fall, and that, moreover, as is most likely, her husband may be at the bottom of the sea, they have not been bold to put in force the extremity of our righteous law against her. The penalty thereof is death. But in their great mercy and tenderness of heart, they have doomed Mistress Prynne to stand only a space of three hours on the platform of her pillory, and then and thereafter, for the remainder of her natural life, to wear a mark of shame upon her bosom. A wise sentence, remarked the stranger, gravely bowing his head. Thus she will be a living sermon against sin until the ignominious letter be engraved upon her tombstone. It irks me, nevertheless, that the partner of her iniquity should not, at least, stand on the scaffold by her side. But he will be known. He will be known. He will be known. He bowed courteously to the communicative townsman, and, whispering a few words to his Indian attendant, they both made their way through the crowd. While this passed, Hester Prynne had been standing on her pedestal, still with a fixed gaze towards the stranger, so fixed a gaze that at moments of intense absorption all other objects in the visible world seemed to vanish, leaving only him and her. Such an interview, perhaps, would have been more terrible than even to meet him as she now did, with the hot midday sun burning down upon her face and lighting up its shame, with the scarlet token of infamy on her breast, with the sin-born infant in her arms, with a whole people drawn forth as to a festival, staring at the features that should have been seen only in the quiet gleam of the fireside, 
in the happy shadow of a home or beneath a matronly veil at church. Dreadful as it was, she was conscious of a shelter in the presence of these thousand witnesses. It was better to stand thus, with so many betwixt him and her, than to greet him face to face, they two alone. She fled for refuge, as it were, to the public exposure, and dreaded the moment when its protection should be withdrawn from her. Involved in these thoughts, she scarcely heard a voice behind her, until it had repeated her name more than once, in a loud and solemn tone, audible to the whole multitude. "'Hearken unto me, Hester Prynne,' said the voice. It has already been noticed that directly over the platform on which Hester Prynne stood was a kind of balcony or open gallery appended to the meeting-house. It was the place whence proclamations were wont to be made amidst the assemblage of the magistracy, with all the ceremonial that attended such public observances in those days. Here, to witness the scene which we are describing, sat Governor Bellingham himself, with four sergeants about his chair, bearing halberds as a guard of honor. So, Governor Bellingham, just so you know, Richard Bellingham, actual Governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1641, 1654, and then from 1655 to 1672. And the halberds that I just mentioned, they are a combined axe and spear point mounted on a large pole. You have seen these before um, when, you know, people with kind of armor on are marching around. So, you got him sitting up there over Hester, surrounded by four guys with axes and spear points. Because, <laughs> you know, she's so dangerous. All right, back to the story. He wore a dark feather in his hat, a border of embroidery on his cloak, and a black velvet tunic beneath. A gentleman advanced in years with hard experience written in his wrinkles. He was not ill-fitted to be the head and representative of a community which owed its origin and progress and its present state of development, not to the impulses of youth, but to the stern and tempered energies of manhood and the somber sagacity of age, accomplishing so much precisely because it imagined and hoped so little. I'm going to read that again, because that's a really interesting statement. He was not ill-fitted to be the head and representative of a community, which owed its origin and progress and its present state of development, not to the impulses of youth, but to the stern and tempered energies of manhood and the somber sagacity of age, accomplishing so much precisely because it imagined and hoped so little. The other eminent characters, by whom the chief ruler was surrounded, were distinguished by a dignity of mien, belonging to a period when the forms of authority were felt to possess the sacredness of divine institutions. They were doubtless good men, just and sage, but out of the whole human family, it would not have been easy to select the same number of wise and virtuous persons who should be less capable of sitting in judgment on an erring woman's heart, and disentangling its mesh of good and evil, than the sages of rigid aspect towards whom Hester Prynne now turned her face. She seemed conscious, indeed, of whatever sympathy she might expect lay in the larger and warmer heart of the multitude, for as she lifted her eyes towards the balcony the unhappy woman grew pale and trembled. The voice which had called her attention was that of the reverend and famous John Wilson, the eldest clergyman of Boston, a great scholar, like most of his contemporaries in the profession, and withal a man of kind and genial spirit. He's also a real man. John Wilson arrived with the first letters in 1630. He lived from 1591 to 1667, and he did, in fact, become a leading Puritan minister. So he was withal a man of kind and genial spirit. This last attribute, however, had been less carefully developed than his intellectual gifts, and was, in truth, rather a matter of shame than self-congratulation with him. There he stood with a border of grizzled locks beneath his skullcap, while his gray eyes, accustomed to the shaded light of his study, were winking, like those of Hester's infant in the unadulterated sunshine. 
He looked like the darkly engraved portraits, which we see prefixed to old volumes of sermons, and had no more right than one of those portraits would have to step forth as he now did, and meddle with a question of human guilt, passion, and anguish. Hester Prynne, said the clergyman, I have striven with my young brother here, under whose preaching of the word you have been privileged to sit. Here Mr. Wilson laid his hand on the shoulder of a pale young man beside him. I have sought, I say, to persuade this godly youth that he should deal with you here in the face of heaven, and before these wise and upright rulers, and in the hearing of all the people, as touching the vileness and blackness of your sin. Knowing your natural temper better than I, he could the better judge what arguments to use, whether of tenderness or terror, such as might prevail over your hardness and obstinacy, insomuch that you should no longer hide the name of him who tempted you to this grievous fall. But he opposes to me, with a young man's over-softness, albeit wise before his years, that it were wronging the very nature of woman to force her to lay open her heart's secret in such broad daylight, and in the presence of so great a multitude. Truly, as I sought to convince him, the shame lay in the commission of the sin, and not in the showing of it forth. What say you to it, once again, Brother Dimsdale? Must it be thou or I that shall deal with this poor sinner's soul? There was a murmur among the dignified and reverend occupants of the balcony, and Governor Bellingham gave expression to its purport, speaking in an authoritative voice, although tempered with respect towards the youthful clergyman with whom he addressed. "'Good Master Dimsdale,' said he, "'the responsibility of this woman's soul lies greatly with you. It behooves you, therefore, to exhort her to repentance and to confession, as a proof and consequence thereof. The directness of this appeal drew the eyes of the whole crowd upon the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, a young clergyman who had come from one of the great English universities, bringing all the learning of his age into the wild forest land. His eloquence and religious fervor had already given the, earn the earnest of high eminence in his profession. He was a person of very striking aspect, with a white, lofty and impending brow, large brown melancholy eyes, and a mouth which, unless when he forcibly compressed it, was apt to be tremulous, expressing both nervous sensibility and a vast power of self-restraint. Notwithstanding his high native gifts and scholar-like attainments, there was an air about this young minister, an apprehensive, a startled, a half-frightened look, as of a being who felt himself quite astray and at a loss in the pathway of human existence, and could only be at ease in some seclusion of his own. Therefore, so far as his duties would permit, he trod in the shadowy by-paths, and thus kept himself simple and childlike, coming forth when occasion was, with a freshness and fragrance and dewy purity of thought, which, as many people said, affected them like the speech of an angel." Such was the young man whom the Reverend Mr. Wilson and the Governor had introduced so openly to public notice, bidding him speak, in the hearing of all men, to that mystery of a woman's soul, so sacred even its pollution. The trying nature of this position drove the blood from his cheek and made his lips tremulous. "'Speak to the woman, my brother,' said Mr. Wilson. "'It is of moment to her soul.' and therefore, as the worshipful governor says, momentous to thine own in whose charge hers is. Exhort her to confess the truth. The Reverend Mr. Dimdale bent his head in silent prayer, as it seemed, and then he came forward. Hester Prynne, said he, leaning over the balcony and looking down steadfastly into her eyes, thou hearest what this good man says, and ceased the accountability under which I labor. If thou feelst it to be for thy soul's peace, and that thy earthly punishment will thereby be made more effectual to salvation, I charge thee to speak out the name of thy fellow sinner and fellow sufferer. 
Be not silent from any mistaken pity and tenderness for him. For, believe me, Hester, though he were to step down from a high place, and stand there beside thee on thy pedestal of shame, yet better were it so than to hide a guilty heart through life. What can thy silence do for him except to tempt him? Yea, compel him, as it were, to add hypocrisy to sin. Heaven hath granted thee an open ignominy, that thereby thou mayest work out an open triumph over the evil within thee and the sorrow without. Take heed how thou deniest to him, who perchance hath not the courage to grasp it for himself, the bitter but wholesome cup that is now presented to thy lips. The young pastor's voice was tremulously sweet, rich, deep, and broken. The feeling that is so evidently manifested, rather than the direct purport of the words, caused it to vibrate within all hearts, and brought the listeners into one accord of sympathy. Even the poor baby at Hester's bosom was affected by the same influence, for it directed its hitherto vacant gaze towards Mr. Dimsdale and held up its little arms with a half-pleased, half-plaintive murmur. So powerful seemed the minister's appeal that the people could not believe but that Hester Prynne would speak out the guilty name, or else that the guilty one himself, in whatever high or lowly place he stood, would be drawn forth by an inward and inevitable necessity, and compelled to ascend the scaffold. Hester shook her head. "'Woman, transgress not beyond the limits of heaven's mercy!' cried the Reverend Mr. Wilson, more harshly than before, that little babe hath been gifted with a voice to second and confirm the counsel which thou hast heard. Speak out the name. That and thy repentance may avail to take the scarlet letter off thy breast. Never, replied Hester Prynne, looking not at Mr. Wilson, but into the deep and troubled eyes of the younger clergyman. It is too deeply branded. Ye cannot take it off and would that I might endure his agony as well as mine. "'Speak, woman!' said another voice, coldly and sternly, proceeding from the crowd about the scaffold. "'Speak and give your child a father!' "'I will not speak!' answered Hester, turning pale as death, but responding to this voice, which she too surely recognized. "'And my child must seek a heavenly father. She shall never know an earthly one.' "'She will not speak,' murmured Mr. Dimsdale, who, leaning over the balcony with his hand upon his heart, had awaited the result of his appeal. He now drew back with a long respiration. "'Wondrous strength and generosity of a woman's heart! She will not speak!' Discerning the impracticable state of the poor culprit's mind, the elder clergyman, who had carefully prepared himself for the occasion, addressed to the multitude a discourse on sin in all its branches, but with continual reference to the ignominious letter. So forcibly did he dwell upon this symbol for the hour or more during which his periods were rolling over the people's heads, that it assumed new terrors in their imagination, and seemed to derive its scarlet hue from the flames of the infernal pit. Hester Prynne, meanwhile, kept her place upon the pedestal of shame, with glazed eyes and an air of weary indifference. She had borne that morning all that nature could endure, and as her temperament was not of the order that escapes from too intense suffering by a swoon, her spirit could only shelter itself beneath a stony crust of insensibility, while the faculties of animal life remained entire. In this state, the voice of the preacher thundered remorselessly, but unavailingly, upon her ears. The infant, during the latter portion of her ordeal, pierced the air with its wailings and its screams. She strove to hush it mechanically, but seemed scarcely to sympathize with its trouble. With the same hard demeanor, she was led back to prison, and vanished from the public gaze within its iron-clamped portal. It was whispered by those who peered after her that the scarlet letter threw a lurid gleam across the dark passageway of the interior. End 
of chapter three. I love this chapter and I love the one that's going to come next. And I'm not reading you the one that comes next because... Well, wait a second, maybe. No, it'll be too long. But, oh, man, good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. So, who do you think the man next to the Indian was? He has one raised shoulder and he's scholarly and he's old and he's thin. And if you recall, at the end of last week, the marketplace, Hester was kind of letting her past roll through her mind as she was standing up on the scaffold. And she thinks of herself and her father and her mother and their house, which was kind of on the skids. And then she saw her own face glowing with girlish beauty and illuminating all the interior of the dusky mirror in which she had been wont to gaze at it. There she beheld another countenance, of a man well stricken in years, a pale, thin, scholar-like visage, with eyes dim and bleared by the lamplight that had served them to pore over many ponderous books. Yet those same bleared optics had a strange, penetrating power when it was their owner's purpose to read the human soul. This figure of the study and the cloister, as Hester Prynne's womanly fancy failed not to recall, was slightly deformed, with the left shoulder a trifle higher than the right. Hmm. And here's someone fitting that description, showing up in town a couple years after her husband was lost at sea. Interesting. No. The other thing, uh, of course, that jumps out at my mind is uh, that his, he has a deformity. And we've talked about this before with, with Hyde and with, you know, many, many texts that we've come across, uh, that ugliness or a deformity is supposed to be often in these older stories, some kind of sign of an internal or moral um, imperfection as well, which is horrifying, but it makes it really obvious to see what people are like in the book. Uh, of course, it has nothing to do with real life that way. Um, it's also, I think, important for me to go back and read a little bit of Dimsdale's speech again. Because if you haven't figured out all of the, the pieces to the puzzle yet, you will soon. But this speech is something that you will think back to over and over again. So I'm going to read it to you one more time. Hester Prynne, said he, leaning over the balcony and looking down steadfastly into her eyes. Thou hearest what this good man says, and seest the accountability under which I labor. If thou feelest it to be for thy soul's peace, and that thy earthly punishment will thereby be made more effectual to salvation, I charge thee to speak out the name of thy fellow sinner and fellow sufferer. Be not silent from any mistaken pity and tenderness for him, for believe me, Hester, though he were to step down from a high place and stand there beside thee on thy pedestal of shame, yet better were it so than to hide a guilty heart through life. What can thy silence do for him except it tempt him, yea, compel him, as it were, to add hypocrisy to sin? Heaven hath granted thee an open ignominy that thereby thou mayst work out an open triumph over the evil within thee and the sorrow without. Take heed how thou deniest to him who perchance hath not the courage to grasp it for himself, the bitter but wholesome cup that is now presented to thy lips. It's a beautiful speech. And it's something you're going to think about. And then, of course, the wonderful Hester Prynne refusing on a scaffold in front of God and everyone. And, the, you know, the governor telling her to say this guy's name, saying that her child must seek a heavenly father because she will never know an earthly one. I mean, my goodness, the chutzpah of this woman. <laughs> There's no other word for it. She is tough. She is tough and smart and strong. And I posit, and I continue to believe this, that Nathaniel Hawthorne was an early feminist. You see women writers occasionally writing, writing women this tough. I mean, certainly 
Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice, she's really strong and she's really smart, but she never had to face up to something this hideous. Emma didn't... Jane Eyre... You could probably argue for Jane Eyre. But this American writer seems to me to have captured this tough... We had to scrabble for our life beginning that this country had in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. There's a lovely, lovely line in the... I'm trying to remember if it's a song or just... It's it's during a song. A lovely line between John Adams and Abigail Adams in the very cheesy but often wonderful uh, musical 1776, where in one of her letters, Martha said um, that she had heard that, that Martha Jefferson was very beautiful. And he says something to the effect of, sure, she's beautiful, but she's not strong and lovely the way New England women are. That there's something earthy and bold and persistent and remarkable and beautiful about people who have worked hard to make a good life for themselves, or any life for themselves, as a matter of fact. So, it's very interesting to me, too, because my husband and I have been talking. There are many topics right now that are going on in the news that have have taken on a, a moral tone. You know, well, we can't let people get away with that because that would be bad. You know, they're bad people and we can't reward bad people. And it sounds kind of puritanical when people couch it that way instead of talking about things without labels like good and bad or evil or sinful or things like that. There's a time and a place for that, definitely. But I find it odd to hear it in politics. But again, this is how our country started. And I've read some very interesting books about the fact that America and the American democracy, the way that we run it, which is rather unique and imperfect, but, you know, it's working, uh, that one of the only reasons that this kind of democracy worked is because by the time everybody got around to forming a government, this practice of town hall meetings and electing representatives and letting those representatives make the decisions for the rest of the, the township or county or state or territory or whatever, um, th- that was already firmly in place. And a lot of that came from the Puritan way of running a church and the Quaker way of running a church with meetings and everybody having a voice and you follow the law. There is a rule of law. And certainly for the Puritans, it was God's law. But they also managed to, you know, do the whole city, town, country thing. And wasn't it interesting, that comment that they had, they had done well specifically because the people who were running things were old and weren't idealistic. They didn't hope. They just wanted to survive. I found that fascinating. And something to think about. I don't know how I feel about it yet. I'd forgotten that line. So there's a lot of early America in here, and especially for those of you who are living outside of the country, um, this Dimsdale and the rest of the Puritan guys are not exaggerated caricatures at all. In fact, um, I'm going to read to you a little bit of a sermon. And it's, uh, I remember the first time I read it was when I was teaching American literature, and I was shocked, because this is a, a sermon by Cotton Mather. It's a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, um, it's, sorry, it's not Cotton Mather, it's uh, Jonathan uh, Edwards. Um, they're all kind of there. Uh, Increase Mather, Cotton Mather, and Jonathan Edwards were all incredibly influential um, orators and writers and religious figures. And this one was particularly shocking. Um, The the story goes that when Edwards gave this sermon, um, first of all, the people in the meeting house had to stand 
during the sermon. So they're standing there, and this is just a piece of it. I think this thing went on for like two, three hours. And people were fainting and bursting into tears and trembling because this was horrible. This was, um, he did this during the, oh, it's the great something now, I can't remember. It was when they were trying to revive Puritan religious belief. It kind of had been sloughing off a bit. So he was trying to kind of scare people back to God. So I wanted to find, he says, um, the observation from the words that I would now assist upon is this, and this is his doctrine. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell, but the mere pleasure of God. So you are literally only walking this earth because God has decided that he's not going to squash you <laughs> under his finger. So it's it's kind of horrifying. And then he says, um, and again, you know, remember that he is yelling this at a congregation full of men and women and children. He goes on, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with a great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution, and your own care and prudence, and best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Nice, huh? And he goes on the second, uh, the second instance of spider. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire he is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Wow. Nice, huh? You could listen to that for three hours. Fun. I want to go to meeting. Um, it's shocking. Um, it was the Second Great Awakening. That was when uh, Jonathan Edwards showed up. So I, I think it's fair to say that Hawthorne did his homework and that the kinds of things that you hear coming out of certainly Wilson and Bellingham and uh, other people of their ilk is pretty reasonable for the time. Um, actually, if, if anything, they're a little bit more mild than um, some of the folks that you read. But not Bradford. William Bradford, who was the, the first one uh, to set up Massachusetts Bay Colony and run it, I think for 30 years, was an interesting character. And he has uh, an autobiography that includes the trip on the Mayflower and um, landing and all of the difficulty. It was his wife who they think probably most likely committed suicide off of the boat once they were waiting for over a month to make landfall. The men were out in little dinghies, but the women were all stuck on the ship with people who didn't like them in the first place. So Bradford was pretty interesting, and Bradford uh, Bradford got along with the Native Americans. They had a very peaceful coexistence for quite some time, which is, of course, where we get the first Thanksgiving from. Um, for those of you who are out of the country, the first Thanksgiving was uh, a moment when they had made it. They had made it through the first winter, which killed off, I think, a third, quarter or a third of their small population. They made it through the winter. They made it through planting. They made it through harvesting. In the fall, they evidently, you know, this is kind of oral tradition. It's also in Bradford's book, but, it, you know, it gets embellished as the story gets told. Um, they had a big Thanksgiving meal. Uh, Indians, Native Americans, and the, the white folks all sitting down at a table together sharing their harvest. So the wild turkey comes from there. The uh, corn or succotash comes from there, which is a mixture of corn and bell peppers and other things. And um, the pumpkin pie, which you've heard Brenda talk about on uh, 
cast on uh, the pumpkin pie or some kind of squash pie. Although I heard a rumor somewhere that pie actually started much later. I don't know if that's true. It, if anything, it was probably something resembling a, a pie that was baked in a Dutch oven in the coals. I don't think it looked like Martha Stewart. But, um, but it was this idea of giving thanks to God for letting you live because really there was no guarantee for this group of people. And as a tradition, uh, they continued to have that meal, and Americans have since. Uh, I'm sure at some point it rolled out of favor, and I'm sure one of you listening knows the actual full history of the Thanksgiving meal. But I always thought it was kind of interesting, because it's a little bit like Passover. It's, you know, we, we went into the wilderness, and we came out of the wilderness, and thank God we're still alive, and we should be thankful for everything we have. So it's kind of a nice holiday, actually. Family, food, <laughs> what more do you need? Well, I suppose if your family's really lousy, then you just want the food. But there's always a Thanksgiving dinner you can get invited to somewhere. You just need to sometimes ask. Because I spent one Thanksgiving having SpaghettiOs at my grandparents' house when I couldn't fly to be with everybody else, and they were all gone, and it really bit. Ooh! Before we leave, I need to give a shout out to Kim and Marna, two of my friends from work forever ago, who I find out listen to the podcast. Oh, maybe I can see you when I'm in New York. I'm going to swing by Kaplan, so I'll be down in that neck of the woods. Maybe we can go to that pub. <laughs> it's just bizarre taking an international podcast and saying hi to two of your friends. But, you know, hi, two of my friends. Oh, it's good to know that you're out there. And I think... There isn't a whole lot more to say about this chapter other than, mmm, good stuff. Next week, the chapter is called, and I'll give you three guesses what it's going to be about. It's called The Interview. You know that Hester is inside the prison. You know who is outside the prison. My guess is someone's going to go in and talk to her. It's a great chapter. I love this book. I hope you're enjoying it as well as I am. Maybe it's just me enjoying reading it out loud again. But I think it's great. And I think Hawthorne's a very interesting writer. And people continue to email me thanking Julie, thank you Julie, for doing such a spectacular job with Custom House. Because at least three quarters of the people who are emailing have said that they'd only ever read The Scarlet Letter and not The Custom House. And that now everything makes so much more sense. So, if you are one of the people who skipped the Custom House section, you're now far enough into this book that listening to those two episodes might make more sense. And, um, and Julie does a beautiful job reading. So, once again, thank you to her. Very soon, we are going to start moving into chapters read by other Craftlit listeners. I have those all sitting here waiting to go. And I just think we're wonderful. We have such good readers. It makes me so happy. And um, I had a request from one of our listeners, Wendy, to start putting um, works in project or works in process or finished objects on as the art in uh, the little pod thing so that if you have an iPod or an MP3 player or an on-screen player that shows the artwork that I'm including and the chapter breaks and things like that, that you would be able to see that displayed. I will start doing that, uh, absolutely, but I'm going to wait until I have something to show you. And I'll try and do the different pictures for the chapter breaks so that you can kind of tell visually where you are in the, the podcast. Uh, I used to do that. It was a long time ago. And then for some reason, I stopped. I, actually, I think it was because I, I didn't know anybody could see it. I started to think that I was just wasting a lot of time. So now that I know that you can see it, I will keep it up. So that's it for this week. For you lost aficionados, go watch the Lost video podcast to watch uh, Hurley talking to, oh shoot, what's his name? He's the really funny Asian actor. I love him. Who's, uh, they're talking about quantum physics and the time-space conundrum. And it's four minutes long, and it's really funny to watch them wrestle with the problems of time and space on, you know, a TV show. 
kind of cool. If you aren't a Lost fan, I say go back, pick it up. There's a whole season you can probably skip without hurting yourself, but it's not bad. It is worth it. And I'll leave you with that. Have a great week. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.